Welcome to Hometown California, a production of the Rural County Representatives of California, advocating for California's rural counties for nearly 50 years. Hometown California tells the rural story through the eyes of those who live, work, and play in the rural communities of the Golden State. This is Hometown California. I'm your host, Paul Smith. Joining me once again today for our third installment of our series on the 2020 general election is Leah Askarinam. Leah, welcome back. Hi, thanks. Leah is the editor-in-chief at the National Journal in Washington, D.C. Leah, remind our listeners again what the National Journal is, what you do for it, and how to find out more about it. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Hotline, and we're probably best known for our daily newsletter, multiple actually, one that goes out at nine, one that goes out around noon, that basically takes all of the elections news of the day and campaigns news for presidential, Senate, House, gubernatorial, and also state ledge, and puts it in your inbox with a bit of context. This is our third and final of the first set of podcasts that we're going to do on the election. We talked about in that first one, the presidential race and the electoral college. And then our last podcast was the U.S. Senate, which if you tuned into that, you would listen to a very interesting set of races, particularly Georgia's. We are going to turn our attention to the House of Representatives. I guess I'll start by saying to you first, Leah, does anyone believe that the Republicans can recapture the House this year? So Tom Emmer, the chairman of the NRCC, still believes that the majority is within reach, as does the executive director, Parker Polling. Outside of the two of them, whose job is to win back the majority, there's a lot of skepticism among Republicans and Democrats. Right now, the number one priority for most Republicans is damage control and actually making sure that Republicans don't lose more seats rather than trying to get enough to win the majority. That was going to be my next question. Do you feel that Democrats can really expand their majority? Or are we probably looking at a two to three vote swing when all's tallied at the end of this cycle? That's a good question. So Democrats can expand. The question of kind of how far they can expand is a little bit trickier. So we can go through a few individual districts. Basically, Democrats have three Hillary Clinton districts that are still within Republican grasp. So that would be plus three if they can finish off that group. There are about 20 others that they flipped in 2018. And then there are these kind of narrow Trump districts, mostly in the suburbs, that they think are offensive targets. There's dozens of those. The question is how many of those dozens of suburban seats they'll actually flip and also how many of the current seats they have they can effectively and successfully defend. Democrats could expand into the double digits, but it's also possible that they just expand by a few seats and it's also possible they lose a few seats. These are all within the realm of possibility at this point. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to point out to a lot of our listeners that House seats, unlike the presidential race, unlike Senate seats, there's two master influences in those races. One is obviously the national tide, which clearly we saw in 2018 have an effect. But really, House seats are kind of their own local dynamic and local personalities and a lot of local issues that don't necessarily transcend nationally. If you believe in that approach, do you think either one has a bigger weight this time? I don't think that that's the norm. I think the norm is that these districts go with the national environment and kind of their own political makeup. But there are enough of those exceptions where personality is the strongest factor in these races that could affect the majority. 
basically Democrats are continuing their 2018 strategy. A lot of folks who have not held elected office before trying to campaign outside of either political party, not necessarily associating themselves with Nancy Pelosi, but not saying that they're Donald Trump's supporters either. On the Republican side, it's actually a little bit more interesting this cycle because, for the most part, Republicans are on offense. And they're looking at the 2018 Democratic strategy, which was recruit candidates who are not your typical politicians, which also included a lot of women, a lot of minorities. There are a lot of firsts in the 2018 Congress. And Republicans in a lot of districts are trying to replicate that. So they're bringing in more women than ever to run for office. They're bringing in a slightly more diverse field of candidates in terms of race and ethnicity. So in a lot of these districts, that could make a big difference. So Leah, set the table for us. So how many seats do the Republicans lose when they lost their majority and how many do they need to gain back? Democrats in 2018 flipped 43 seats. Republicans flipped three seats. But since then, Democrats have lost one seat, one in California. That was a Katie Hill seat. And the other loss is Jeff Andrew, who switched his party affiliation to Republicans. So at this point, Republicans need to gain 17 seats to win the majority. So not impossible, but not sure 60 days out what that mood is. We can kind of guess it, but we're still a little way out. What's the expectations game for both parties? And what do you think will secure Ms. Pelosi? What do you think will secure Mr. McCarthy, both from California, both leaders in their own right in the House of Representatives? That's a really good question, especially on the Republican side, because after the 2012 election, Republicans had the famous autopsy report where they basically tried to redraw Republican messaging to meet the 21st century. And that was not actually applied in the 2016 race. So I do think it depends on after the election, what Republicans think caused them to sustain losses or to minimize losses or in a very long shot world to recapture the majority. If they're thinking that it's an issue of strategy, if it was an issue of recruitment, then that's a fixable issue that could involve staff changes. If it's just the national environment, then there's also a chance that the current players are not going to be the best spokesmen for the party. I mean, it could just go a whole bunch of different directions. And Ms. Pelosi, I believe, has kind of indicated this might be it for her, that she probably is going to be turning over the gavel in January. How do the elections play into that dynamic? There's a lot of concern in 2018 that Nancy Pelosi would cost Democrats the majority, that, you know, she was so toxic to suburban voters or to Republican voters or independents, that she had such a kind of a polarizing personality that she would hurt Democrats up and down the ballot. And that was something that Republicans also believed, which is why she was so present in Republican ads. We're seeing her still present in Republican ads, but not to the same extent as she was in 2018. Now Republicans are more likely to cite Bernie Sanders or even Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez makes appearances in a lot of Republican ads. So does Ilhan Omar. So Nancy Pelosi is still one of Republicans' boogeymen, but she's not the only one and not even necessarily the most effective one anymore. So I don't know what the calculus is going to be in deciding whether Nancy Pelosi will continue to serve in her current role. I think it's hard to make the case that she is costing Democrats votes simply by being the face of the Democratic Party. And so let's drive down a little bit on Mr. McCarthy's status. Obviously, if the GOP takes the majority, which I think is going to be really difficult, he will retain his leadership. And I think if he comes even within a few seats of doing that, he's going to be pretty safe and holding on to the leadership there. But 
don't you think there is a threshold of numbers that he has to reach or can't fall below or else he's in trouble? There might be. I I think that that's probably part of the question. It's just, I think a bigger question right now is what does the Republican Party look like if Trump loses? Does it look like they're trying to totally redefine what they are, in which case Trump allies would not be in the picture? And I think Kevin McCarthy counts in that category. Or do they decide to go with kind of more of the same? Republicans right now are really campaigning on cultural issues. They're campaigning on law and order. A little bit of China sometimes makes it into their ads, but really it's coming down to painting Democrats as radical and painting Democratic voters as as a mob. And so, I mean, I think it kind of comes down to whether that strategy ends up being effective or not. If not, then I don't know how he keeps his position. That caucus has been pretty tough. You've seen a lot of leaders over the span of Ms. Pelosi's tenure. So I'm afraid this could make difficulties for Mr. McCarthy if things don't go well on election night and thereafter. So this is hometown California. So let's focus on some of those California seats you alluded to a moment ago, particularly the big one that I think is going to capture the national attention it already has. Just a reminder that Democrats were able to flip seven seats in California. A big, big change. Republicans lost almost half their delegation here out in California in 2018, and everybody likes to talk about the uh, key seven. So let's go through those seven seats, and we'll start with that big one, California 25. This is in northern Los Angeles County, one originally by Katie Hill. She knocked off an incumbent, Steve Knight, in 2018. She's in office a matter of mere months, gets caught in a scandal, resigns her seat, and before you know it, we have a special election between Mike Garcia and Christy Smith, Mike Garcia being an aerospace executive in the Palmdale area, and Christy Smith, the sitting assemblywoman who had just gotten elected to the state assembly. Garcia wins uh, relatively handy in what was an interesting special election during the pandemic and during a low turnout race. Everyone thinks this is the battle royale. Would you see it that way? I think so. I think that it's probably the most competitive race, maybe tied with California's 21st district, which we can get to later. Mike Garcia has an advantage in that he is running for re-election or really just first election for a full term in a district that Hillary Clinton carried, but he doesn't have a long record in Congress. He was not there to vote on health care in 2017. So he just has less of a track record for Democrats to attack. And it's possible that he gets the benefit of the doubt in a way that other Republicans in Hillary Clinton districts did not. There are three other Republican-held districts that Hillary Clinton carried in 2016. Two of those are open seats. So Garcia does have a a really unique kind of position in Congress and in the 2020 House map. Yeah, and Christy Smith remains the sitting assemblywoman in that area. Obviously, she will not be an assemblywoman come December, regardless of how this plays out. But she's a power in her own right. And a lot of people just think that it was a low turnout. It was one of those funky special elections that once we get into the national tide, that she's just going to clean Mr. Garcia's clock. Do you subscribe to that theory? I'm not sure if I subscribe to that theory. I think that the national environment is on Christy Smith's side. I also think that so many weird things have happened in this particular congressional district, starting with Katie Hill and then the special election. And it's just kind of what we were talking about earlier, about how in general, the national environment and demographics are the key indicators in House races. But we're going to see some exceptions. This is the kind of race where you 
could see an exception. If you are going to expect an exception, this would be a good district to guess that it would take place in. So the next one you alluded to is California 21. This is a big time rematch between the incumbent T.J. Cox and the former incumbent of this seat, David Valadeo. T.J. Cox won this seat weeks after Election Day, won it basically on those final absentee vote count, which put him just across the line well after the election. David Valadeo has held this seat for a number of terms, was relatively popular, probably lost because of the national tide, not necessarily because of him, but This is a seat with an enormous Democratic registration, but at the same time is one of the most competitive seats in the country. Mr. Cox has had some struggles in his term, but obviously David Valadeo with the issue of Trump and this also being a very heavily minority district may not overcome some of those racial overtones of the national campaign. How do you rate this one? Yeah, this is another weird one where Republicans need it to come down to personality. Again, it's one of those Hillary Clinton districts. And T.J. Cox is probably one of the most flawed Democratic incumbents in the country, really, when it comes down to kinds of like personal attacks that Republicans can wage against him. And David Valadeo, in a lot of ways, is one of the strongest Republican recruits because he's a popular former congressman who got knocked out in a wave. There are other districts where we saw incumbents lose and they're running for re-election. And in some of those cases, there's concern that they lost once before. And for whatever reason, sometimes they didn't campaign hard enough. Sometimes they just rub voters the wrong way. David Valadeo doesn't get that kind of criticism. The reception to him running for re-election was pretty warm. So this is, again, one of those races where the national environment could take a backseat to the individual personalities. So I think it's safe to say when you look at Garcia versus Smith and now Cox versus Valadeo, money will not be a problem for either of these candidates. Is that correct? I'd imagine not, though Democrats do just have a general financial advantage in House races. So Cox has the benefit of having the DCCC behind him, which has just been a kind of fundraising BMF cycle. Republicans have to be a little bit more strategic with their spending in the House, especially because their individual candidates just haven't been fundraising at the clip that Democrats have been. The next one is California 10. This has probably fallen off the radar screen since the primary. This is held by incumbent Josh Harder, Democrat. He took out Republican Jeff Denham, who was relatively moderate in the Stanislaus County, a little bit of San Joaquin County, the heart of California's Central Valley. My understanding is that Josh Harder drew an opponent who's affiliated with the QAnon whispers and whatnot. Talk to us about why this has just fallen off the radar screen. I think we'll see it possibly come back on in 2022. Again, it's a Hillary Clinton district where the incumbent is just in a much stronger position. There's a stronger incumbent than challenger. And in the end, Republicans do not have the bandwidth to make this a race. So this is one that I think has just fallen off their priority list. California 39, this is one of the four Orange County-oriented seats we're going to talk about, whereby the Democrats basically flipped the entire Republican delegation. This is Orange County, for those that don't know, was for 100 years the bedrock of Republicanism in the state of California. And now, with these four seats, Orange County is an entirely blue congressional delegation. And the first one we'll talk about is California 39, where incumbent Gil Cisneros is doing another rematch versus Young Kim. Young Kim was an assemblywoman from the area for one term. 
tried her hand in Congress to succeed her old boss, Ed Royce. And like a lot of Republicans just got knocked down by a wave. Now she's back. Can Kim pull it out against a very, very prominent Orange County person in Gil Cisneros? If she couldn't do it in 2018, it would be really hard for her to do it in 2020. There were personal individual attacks toward Gil Cisneros in 2018 that I think that if they were going to penetrate, they would have in 2018. They did not. He won. Young Kim is one of Republicans stronger recruits, but Republicans just released a poll um, in the last month or so showing her behind by a couple points. And that's without the presidential ballot in that poll. So at this point, it's good news to be trailing by a couple points. That's not very promising for young Kim in November. The next seat is California 45. This is Katie Porter's seat. Katie Porter seeming to be the rising star, particularly on the left. And it's been made criticism that she's kind of embraced the left in what is a Republican seat and what has been a Republican county. Tell me how Katie Porter survives and she's going to be battling Greg Raths. If you had told me in December of 2018 that Katie Porter would be essentially safe, going into re-election, I probably would have laughed. But here we are, and she's pretty safe. This is not a top-tier race at all. Republicans are, I'm sure, excited to run against Katie Porter in the future and use her connections to Elizabeth Warren against her, but it's not happening this year. California 48, Harley Rada versus Michelle Steele. This probably is the most competitive of the Orange County seats. Michelle Steele is an Orange County supervisor, longtime activist in the party. Can she get to Harley Rada? So this is probably the toughest Orange County district in terms of the dynamics of the district itself, not taking into account the individual candidates. Then taking into account those individual candidates, Democrats end up with a slight advantage because Congressman Rauta has been pretty good at creating a kind of Orange County moderate personality for himself. He kind of looks like he's out of you know central casting for a, a congressman. Michelle Steele is a strong crew and she's one of the more competitive Republicans running in California right now. But again, it's another Hillary Clinton district. It's going to be really hard for her to pull this off this year, though I'd keep an eye on her in the future if she doesn't win this one. And then lastly, of those big seven, California 49, Mike Levin versus Brian Marriott. My sense is Mike Levin just walks away with this one. I had to Google the Republican before getting on this podcast with you because this has fallen so far off the radar. It does not appear to be a a competitive race at this point. So there are four Republicans who think they might have an outside shot at getting Doug LaMalfa in the North State, Tom McClintock in the Sierras, Devin Nunez in the Central Valley, and then the Duncan Hennessy. So let's start with LaMalfa. This is a pretty strong Trump district, and LaMalfa won by his narrowest margin, I think, that he's ever had in his political career, not just his House career. Can Democrats sneak up on him? It's not impossible, but I would say it's not even really at the fringes of the battlefield at this point. There has been a bit of buzz about potentially Republicans struggling there, but it's pretty far out on the fringes right now. It's not one that I'm watching closely, to be frank. Tom McClintock, his challenger two years ago, Jessica Morse, came pretty close. Demographics are not that much different than LaMalfa, but for the fact that this seat has some Sacramento suburbs that have been falling the way Orange County suburbs have. This year's challenger, I assume, is going to face just as tough a challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a similar one where if there's a massive Democratic wave, they have a candidate there in place to take advantage. But if we're talking about the fringes of the House map, this is on the very, very border of it. 
Devin Nunez. You can't turn on the TV every night and watch Fox without seeing Devin, just a hook, line, and sinker supporter of the president and gets in a lot of trouble with his media down in the Fresno Visalia area. Democrats think they can get him just strictly on the personality who is Devin Nunez. Do you subscribe to that theory? I think it helps his Democratic opponent with fundraising. And we've seen that Nunez's profile, especially during the impeachment hearings, was a major boon for his Democratic opponent. But we kind of see that across the board. You see like a random well-financed Republican going after Adam Schiff. These Democratic challengers tend to be able to get national attention from fundraisers, but that doesn't mean that they're actually going to be able to use that to win in these districts. This would be a pretty far on the fringes. So the last seat that we can talk about in California is the Duncan Hunter seat. This is an interesting seat. Two years ago, Duncan Hunter was under indictment. He is the son of former Congressman Duncan Hunter. I think he's Duncan Hunter the second or something to that effect, but the seat has been in the Hunter family for 30 some odd years. He was running two years ago as an indicted candidate, somehow got across the line. This is a very Republican district east of San Diego, has those Republican suburbs of San Diego, and then it goes up into some rural areas. Duncan Hunter is no longer on the ballot. He pleaded guilty. He is either serving time in prison or just about to leave. So now we have an open seat, and Democrats think they might get this one. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Amar Kampanajar lost to Duncan Hunter in 2018 and was you know, a pretty high-profile candidate. From just my point of view, if he couldn't defeat Duncan Hunter, who was already in at least a bit of legal trouble by the time the election rolled around, I don't know how he can defeat Daryl Issa. It's a really tough district, and Duncan Hunter is just about as flawed as it gets. So Daryl Issa might not be the strongest candidate in the country, but he should be strong enough for this district. Yeah, and for those of you who know, Daryl Issa actually held the 49th congressional district, northern San Diego, southern Orange County, and decided not to seek re-election, and now, several years later, has moved to another part of San Diego County to try to take this seat. So for those that are not paying attention outside of California, what are some of those other key house races that maybe Maybe folks out on the West Coast would want to look to to see how things evolve on election night. So I think the first kind of group to pay attention to are Republican open seats, especially in suburbs or in predominantly non-white areas. So we saw Will Hurd is not running for re-election in Texas 23. That's Democrats' best opportunity. They were hoping that Navy veteran Tony Gonzalez would end up kind of replicating Will Hurd's profile, but at least from the campaign so far and its pretty lackluster primary performance, it's looking like Gina Ortiz-Jones is likely going to win that one. Georgia's 7th District, another open seat that should, if things remain as they are, go into Democrats' column. And then back to Texas, the 22nd district and the 24th, two open seats that are in the suburbs. So, I mean, my number one area to pay attention to is Texas open seats and Georgia's seventh open seat. Let's talk about the seventh congressional district in Georgia. So this was actually one of the closest margins in the country in 2018, if not the closest margin in the country in 2018 for the House race. Carolyn Bordeaux is running again to replace Republican Rob Woodall. It was already demographically looking at its electoral history going to be a pretty tough one for Republicans. They've nominated Rich McCormick, a physician, and he's not raising the kind of money that you would need to raise in order to be competitive in 
this kind of district. That's going to be interesting. And then it's part of the whole political, I, I guess we can call the political circus that is Georgia right now with those Senate races kind of overlaying everything that's going on politically. Yeah. And Georgia's 6th district, again, is going to be targeted by Republicans. So we have a rematch there with Karen Handel as the Republican nominee. So there's, there's quite a bit going on in, in Georgia this year, as I might have mentioned in previous podcasts. So what about that race out in Colorado, Leah, where I believe it was Scott Tipton, who longtime congressman in Colorado, got taken out in the Republican primary by a QAnon in what would be a normally safe Republican seat. Looks like that may show up on the radar screen for Democrats. Well, it's definitely part of what they're hoping will be part of their expanded map. I mean, it's not great for Republicans when an incumbent gets ousted. What we saw in 2018 in South Carolina, one was Republicans ousting Mark Sanford for Katie Arrington. In the end, Katie Arrington lost a really Republican seat to Joe Cunningham. I mean, Republicans are losing the number one, Republicans are losing the advantage of incumbency. So that's huge. Then having this really polarizing Republican, she owns a grill, I think it's called Shooter's Grill, which is basically promotes open carry laws. Yeah, I think even though she owns it, she also waits tables with a sidearm right there at her hip. And it's like, gee, you better give her a good tip. Right, right. So I guess that, I mean, Democrats have a candidate there, Diane Mitch Bush, and she's a, a former state rep who could take advantage if Lauren Boebert ends up being kind of beyond the pale for Republicans there. I haven't seen a lot of polling come out of there yet. It's definitely one to one to watch. Always fascinating, Leah, again. I love to use that word because every time we talk, it's like, wow, my mind's blown. (laughs) Your knowledge of drilling down in some of these seats and races, it's going to be fascinating. We're so glad that you're going to be part of this series over the next several months as we head towards Election Day and who knows, perhaps a big fight in January and can't say thank you enough for participating in this discussion. Thanks so much. This has been a lot of fun. You've been listening to Hometown California, a production of the Rural County Representatives of California. Subscribe now so you don't miss an episode, and be sure to rate and review this podcast. I'm your host, Paul Smith, and thanks for listening.